0: Hello, this is Richard Wilson with The Family Office Club and if you want to learn about investing right before and through a recession so that you can do well and be in line with where your strengths are as a family or private investor, then listen to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast with my friend Sam Newell.
1: Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host, and it is my goal to educate you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments That will cash flow through any economy. I interview the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they have learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become my goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. Hi, and welcome back to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm Sam Newell, your host. I'm really excited to have our next guest on the show. His name's Richard Wilson. He's hugely impressed me with the business that he's built, which is called the Family Office Club. Uh, You can find it at familyoffices.com. Pitchdex.com is another one of his businesses, and centimillionaires.com. He has eight free giveaways for family offices who are uh, looking for performance-based family office solutions, really in the $100 million plus asset class. Now, Richard is the author of the number one best-selling book in the family office industry, The Single Family Office creating, operating, and managing the investment of a single-family office. He also earned a degree from Oregon State University, his MBA from University of Portland, and has studied master's level psychology through Harvard's ALM program while previously residing in Boston. He's now in Miami. He has three kids and continues to run the Family Office Club. He has events all over the nation. I know I'm going to be going to an event soon. And uh, he's also an expert in marketing. And that's one of his businesses, Pitch Decks, learning how to work with investors, work with family offices. And uh, I'm really excited to have have uh, Richard on the show. One of the really impressive things about Richard is that he grew his business during the 2007-2008 real estate crash. In fact, he grew it 100% in 2007, 100% again in 2008 and after that. So without further ado, Richard Wilson. I'm excited to have you on the show. You, like I said, you, you were really impressive. Your branding's fantastic, the information's fantastic. And it just so happens I know a, a guy that's kinda getting his family office started I want to I want to introduce him to you because I think you'd add huge value. So he was a realtor with me. Oh, geez, must have been eight years ago. And his family sold a business. Okay. He and his siblings each inherited I think it was about fifteen million dollars each. Yeah. They were smart. They started investing it. And but he he wasn't he he was still new, so he wasn't sophisticated. He wasn't experienced. And you know, so I'm gonna his name's John. I'm gonna make sure I I connect him with you because. I think you could add huge, add huge value. But is that your typical client? You know, yeah. you work with these family offices. Tell, tell my listeners a little bit about what you do because I think it's you filled a, a niche that really needed what you provide. Yeah, you know, essentially it's usually someone who took a
0: company public, sold a company, or their company's cash flowing at, at much more than a million dollars a year, usually one, two, three, five million a year cash flow. Mm-hmm. Then they needed more sophistication in terms of their wealth management solution. So, we're really trying to fill that gap of like traditional wealth management is diversifying your wealth in stocks, bonds, ETFs, commodities, a whole bunch of uncorrelated, hopefully, stuff. But as you become worth seven, 10, 12, 15 million, or much more, like 50 or 100 million, almost everybody is investing uh, directly into real estate or through an independent sponsor into real estate that's cash flowing and then also investing in the industry where they made their wealth. So, if they're a manufacturing family, they're looking for manufacturing deal flow real estate deal flow well. and that's pretty much how most families operate and some people don't do that from the beginning they trust a wealth advisor with all of their money mm-hmm. but then they just find the itch as an entrepreneur to invest back into their industry or other industries and then they also just desire a sense of control in their portfolio it doesn't really feel normal to them to give it all up to a banker after spending a generation creating the wealth and say oh okay don't lose it for us you
1: know? right right well and so they either get bored or you know they don't love retirement which is what happened to my uncle he at 45 he's retired and and got really really bored right it sounds like there's also people that they they want to invest their own money they want to be in on the deals they want to know what's going on and what i mean what's your ideal client tell us about that because you work with a lot of different different clientele sure sure yeah i'm happy to talk about that and also related to what you just said i just think that uh, some
0: people realize over time that the person they're working with usually inside of the wealth management firm may or may not be the founder of the firm so they're getting a generic strategy that's being pushed out to lots of clients or if the person was so smart to manage their wealth to really grow it and not just play a diversified defense why wouldn't they be sitting on a beach somewhere if they knew how to create that type of wealth like would they really be you know working 60 hours a week serving clients at a wealth management firm you know yeah, not, but, uh. <laughs> I
1: like that point. If I had a gong, I would ring it right now. That's a great point. You know, that's something people need to think about. Yeah, if yeah. they're so good at managing wealth, what what are they doing with your money? And I've heard, right. you know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard a lot of wealth managers, you know, they, they really talk about being good at managing wealth and they're more dependent on fees and and maybe not as good managing their own wealth. I don't know. What What experience do you have with that? Yeah, I mean, most of the time they're connected to a platform and it's point, click,
0: diversify into stuff, get reporting through there. But when you're ultra wealthy, you want to buy the, you know, the 10 plex next to your office building or you want to buy your actual office building. And unless it's a, you know, $200 million asset, for big investment banking shop and Goldman Sachs, U.S. Trust are not going to help you do that. Your wealth manager doesn't want to help you do that. They'll just say, be cautious, be careful right. do your homework. Good luck. You know, so these families go out into the wilderness by themselves and figure out their direct investment portfolio, and that is our ideal client. It's a first-generation, second-generation wealth family, usually entrepreneurial. Sometimes their wealth is created in real estate, but usually from an operating business, and they want to design a strategy for their direct investments. Sometimes they need estate planning, tax planning, the full solution, but they especially need to dial in what type of operating businesses they're investing in and why in what areas, what level of control, et cetera, at what valuations, and then also what type of real estate do they want to allocate to and why, because otherwise what happens is they just start allocating all over the place to whoever has access to them or whoever they trust the most, Mm -hmm. but their assets get scattered all over and then they can't add the strategic value that made them wealthy in the first place, where they really should design a unique game that's true to them, their background, their strengths, kind of their DNA, and where they want to focus their energy so that parts of their portfolio could be a multifamily or diversified stock market holdings to play defense or grow their wealth in a tax-advantaged way in real estate, but then in their offensive area of their operating business investments, you know, that's where with a small percentage of their wealth, they could spike up their net worth. So the ideal client needs that because they're an entrepreneur at heart mm-hmm. and they're early second generation or first generation. So they still believe in creating wealth through creation of value and strategic control somebody just wants to diversify They're generation four just scared of losing great grandpa's money then mm-hmm. they don't need me they can just go to a wealth management shop and scatter their assets far and wide and diversify it to the extreme and not have to do anything
1: right right no i like that so it sounds like you still recommend you know if they were like the example you gave if they were in manufacturing they they need to niche down and not be throwing money at assisted livings at, a, at apartment complexes at storage units at you know, so, I mean, people can do a few things, but that that's the advice I've gotten as well from a number, number of mentors is don't have shiny object syndrome, you know, um, right. down and, and be a specialist. Even these ultra ultra wealthy, it sounds like you you recommend they specialize as well and, and have that, I guess, ability to focus on, on one or two or a couple asset classes.
0: Yeah, I think there's a difference between uh, controlling something completely yourself versus partially outsourcing or completely outsourcing it. So completely outsourcing might be talking to your wealth advisor, they get to know you, they design your portfolio, they invest it for you, and you just get a report once a month or something. The partially outsourcing would be finding maybe one fund manager and three to five independent sponsors, maybe just in one or two real estate types like self-storage and mobile home parks, multifamily and mobile home parks. So you can understand the space over time and get familiar with who's good, who's not, what's standard in the space in terms of returns and risk and fees. And then, you know, you could still choose things deal by deal, but work through an independent sponsor. So you don't have to manage the deal yourself as a family, unless you really want to dig into a space and say, Hey, we're going to go with multifamily with a third party, but from a wild home parks, we're going to do it ourselves and grow that muscle internally. And that's important to us as a family, you know, some families could choose to do that. But if you plan to invest in, warehouses, data centers, mobile home parks, self storage, multifamily, then you have five learning curves. Even if you're just choosing an independent sponsor, mm-hmm. you've got five different learning curves to go up. So it just makes it more simple to choose uh, two or three at most in the real estate, even if you're using independent sponsors, and then meet with 20 to 50 in each area. And then in the operating business side, some people say, oh, well, we're very excited about high tech and tech in general. We made our money in manufacturing or healthcare, they say, well, why don't you invest
2: 15, 16 months? That's a unicorn, right? Needing to be spread is hedging your wealth, right? hedging your bet. And so I tell investors, let's put, instead of putting a a million in one deal, let's do, let's go do, you know, 200,000 in five deals, right? Let's go do that. And so, um, you know, that's what I tell people that now, you know, if we're talking about like a $25,000 investment. It's a person's last money. You know, to be honest, if that's really all their money, there's, there's not enough cash flow to really do anything for them in the real estate side. Right. That's the problem. Sure. So, you know, they have to go park this money for a year, but they're going to get, let's say they get 10%. That's two and a half thousand. That's not that much money. Right. Is that really the right use of it? Cause really, you know, if the person, you know, it's their last of their money, there's probably better uses of that money for them to begin with. Right. Even just because even if they burn down that money over 10 years, right. If a person, let's say it's an elderly person, you know, they, they don't expect to be around for 10 years. Yeah. Well, money's probably better not parked away in a real estate. I'll be honest with you, right? It's probably better, you know, they burn it down. They use three grand a year for three years instead of, you know, two and a half, right? You know, that's a kind of a weird case, right? Now, if it's, you know, if it's people that are looking for the long term, right? And I tell people real estate, is not a get rich quick. Yeah, we had some home runs, but that's not at all the plan. Don't assume that I tell them, right. here's what we've done, but I don't want you to buy for this reason at all. Here's what these deals are I tell you and buy for these these numbers is what you're. Are you okay with with these numbers, right? To double your money six years, whatever we're presenting, right? Now, if you're comfortable parking your money that long, you don't need the money. You're not, you know, you're looking for the cash flow, right? To your point, it's really is that person looking for cash flow? And if so, there's certain deals that work, certain deals that don't work. This Atlanta deal was awesome because it's a doubling money in sixteen years, but it wasn't a cash flow deal. We paid zero percent, zero distributions. And that's what we said from the beginning; like that was the plan. There's no distributions, but you're, you know. The, after the refi, we'd start a really big distributions, right? But now right. we're selling it. But you know that deal doesn't work for certain people, right? Similarly, I have my you know, Microsoft friends who, you know, I'm slowly getting them pulled into this, right? The tech people don't, you know, they're a little more reserved, right? Because it's all, mm-hmm. you know, it's not the stock market, right? And so there are certain deals that work for them, certain deals that don't, right? Some people that are really that think it's snake oil, right? You want to get them in a deal that pays distributions really quickly, right? They can see like, look, there really is money coming in. You don't want to get them in a deal. That's a, a full blown, hardcore reposition, no money for a year and a half kind of deal. Right. So it yeah. depends. You have to really And I tell that even to investors, right? I'm like, Hey Sam, if you have an investor that's kind of on the fence about this to begin with, they're willing to go out on the limb for you, get them in the right deal. You need to really understand who your investor is and what deal makes sense for them. Cause not all, not all deals are created equal.
0: Right?
1: Yeah. No, I, you had a couple good points there. Um, you know, maybe that question wasn't the best because ultimately I don't want to take people's last 20 grand and I don't think you do Yeah, either. that's a weird one. I think maybe more of the question I was asking is let's say my mom or a family member saved up 20, 50 grand, 100 grand. Um, the realization I had was, holy crap, how confident am I in this model? Mm-hmm. You know, because um, I, I think it gets a little bit more real for me when it's someone really close to me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, not I mean, that I don't care about my clients and investors, but it's much more real all of a sudden.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, my parents are invested in this stuff. Ben's parents made a lot of money on that. You know, that's Ben's parents, Like that's, that's kind of their retirement that they, they have. Kind yeah. of had. I mean, it's like we had a lady on this deal in Atlanta. She, I didn't realize she was the biggest investor, but she was, and she had pretty much, pretty much her entire IRA on the deal. <laughs> oh, wow. um, and, you know, she called once she kind of saw that we're selling it, and she was just so thankful because it's life-changing, right? Like it really is yeah right. so you know there's the flip side of that well if this didn't pan out and it totally didn't work out yeah you know, she could have she took up a big risk and so it's right. rewarding as a syndicator to see kind of the impacts you do have right where you know you just made people 50 hundred thousand dollars. that's a lot of that's life-changing for most people it really is right yeah and So um, no you
1: know, that's it, really cool i i love that and as a realtor you know i'm a commercial broker residential broker and and, you know, my favorite example is my good friend, the seminary teacher, you know, he doesn't make a ton of money. Yeah. He adds a ton of value to people's lives and he teaches, you know, seminary and church classes, but um, financially it's not uh, overly rewarding for him. He saved his money though. And we, we've doubled his money in the last three years.
2: What's well, the kind of thing, right? People will spend 15 years saving $50,000 and yeah. if you double it for them in four years, how much further are they in life?
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's really exciting for me. And I love that you said that because it is, it's hugely really rewarding when you help people. And I also like what you said, you know, spread that money out over a few deals because I've looked at track records from a few syndicators and no one that I would ever do business with has lost money, but they've had the unicorns. <laughs> they've had returns that are just absolutely ridiculous and they've had investors, they even told me they've had investors pretty pissed off why didn't you put me in that deal? Well, I, I didn't know it was a unicorn when yeah, I bought. it. you don't know it. the
2: unicorn until later, right? And it's—I mean, even this Atlanta deal, I'm not going to lie with you. Lie to you. I mean, this deal six months into it, man, Ben and I were like ripping our eyeballs out. It was all pain across the board. We we're like, oh man, like what do we get ourselves into, right? Like, but you know, the numbers don't lie. But it's like, I mean, it, you grind it out, especially like a lender that won't fund you, and you're battling with them, and you're battling with tenants, and you're battling with crime, and is forty percent. It's you know it's not roses right i mean you just have to find oh, yeah. it that's where a lot of people falter right people do one two deals and they don't have the systems and have the operations and they they can't even sustain more deals right let alone getting to a deal that's like a big turnaround it's i mean there's it's bad yeah, like you don't know it's a unicorn until later once you kind of get back on the other side you can kind of breathe a little bit and you know you have to like that's why we put up three hundred thousand of our own money i was never going to go to investors on that deal that deal we knew it performed, it would make the money. It's purely the stupid lender that's holding on to all of our rehab money. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll give a real example. I, I, you know, we haven't gotten a payment from the lender for like eight months, dude. It really has been that, maybe even more than that, 10 months, actually. And finally, we're so, you know, we're 95% occupied, all that. Yeah. And I finally submitted, you know, a draw, and I'm like, here's a draw. Everything's already said and done. You just need to just give me the money now. Yeah. And the guy, this is what really pissed me off. He, he came back and said, you guys aren't able to service your note, right? We need to hold on to the money. And then I was so – I basically replied back. I'm like, A, our NOI is this much. Our note is this much. And with escrow and everything, we're still paying it. So where do you say we can't service the note? I'm yeah. like, B, we're we paying interest on the money that you're holding in reserve. What Where does it say in the, the, the loan agreement that you can hold on to money for servicing a note? And C, I'm like, your point – it was just like so stupid. I saw that and I forwarded the bet. I'm like, I can't wait to sell this deal. But then yeah. they finally out of the blue, like they didn't respond. And are you them? He's like, You guys will get the money on Friday. Like, okay, so you guys are just like liars, man. You're just oh, my oh God. these
1: guys piss me off so much. Well, other but, than crappy bridge lender that you'll probably never use again. I, I'm I, I you're only experienced, you're not experienced until you're experienced. So we're gonna go through our first one here in the next little bit and I'm just kinda curious what was your hardest part of you and Ben managing this heavy, heavy lift. Just
2: dealing with GCs in the rehab. I mean, that's really what it is, right? I mean, you know, that's just, that's always a pain. And you know, I mean, it's just dealing with the cash flow. cash is king in this business, right? At least with these rehabs, you know, these properties eat money during rehabs, right? Because you take an occupancy dip, so you don't produce money. You're doing all this rehab. I mean, it's being, you know, just managing the cash position in general, right?
1: So um, so did you raise money to pay the mortgage, pay the note basically assuming that you had a pretty massive uh, vacancy dip?
2: Um yeah, like we knew we'd have a vacancy dip so that was the that was the intention, right? So Got it.
1: Got it. Well, hey, um usually at the start of the podcast I say, "Hey, you know, Ferris, where were you in high school, college? Obviously I know you have a tech background, but were you dreaming of someday helping people achieve massive success in real estate investing and being a syndicator? Were you focused on tech? Were you like me? And like not even close to either of those. I was actually wanting to be an air force fighter pilot. Um, So I didn't think about real estate in the slightest, but where were you in high school and and what were you thinking about? What were your hopes and dreams?
2: (laughs) High school, I had my own little mini software company. I made a good amount of money for a high schooler and always planned to probably continue doing that. So definitely did not, you know, realize, Much about real estate, if anything. So, when did you get interested in real estate? Um, I guess so. I mean, after college, I worked at Microsoft, and then I left Microsoft, started our software company, and as part of that, I I managed had extra money. I was looking to invest, and you know, I'd obviously done the stock market, done all these other things. And I am the kind of person I'll just go read and learn a lot, and then hop in and figure it out. and Bought a fourplex. That's what they say, you know, on all the podcasts. And there's very few fourplexes in Houston that make sense. and I bought it while I was still in Seattle. Like, I literally, oh, wow. you know, before I even moved back to Seattle, I had it under, or back to Houston, I had it under contract. We you know, had to run all the numbers, and I called a random agent. And I'm like, hey, I just need someone to buy this, transact this for me. So I kind of tossed that agent a bone, and he did bring me a deal like six months later. Oh, no. Nice. But it's, I bought a fourplex. It's like one of the only two areas of Houston that makes sense to do a fourplex where it's what not
1: a. In? I know Houston fairly well.
2: Westheimer and Derry Ashford. I still own it till this day, and it's literally on the market as we speak. So it'll be sold probably here soon. Oh cool! Um, I mean, that thing has been a cash cow, right? So all the potential, Houston doesn't have a lot of fourplexes in general. So, you know, ended up buying a bunch of houses and then
1: kind of from there got into multifamily. Got it. And, and that was after you'd been in the tech industry. How long? Man, depends. Do you count high school or not? I mean, I've always been in the tech industry. Yeah, man. You can count high school. 15 years. Okay. So 15 and, years. I
2: mean, I'm still a techie at heart. I totally...
1: Oh, yeah, I can awesome. tell. Yeah, I love your systems. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, you're so much better at systems, I can tell, than me. It's not even funny. Like, obviously, you have a tech background. But tell me a little bit about the two systems. You're using Asana, and what else were you using that talked to each other?
2: We use Asana, Slack, Podio.
1: Slack. We've yeah, used
2: yeah. Um, Trillo in the past. I mean, I'm looking at tying in even more things, right? So, I mean, for us, we use Asana as our task management. Asana got its roots, really, to, kind of for the tech world. So mm-hmm. the one of the co-founders of Facebook left and started Asana. Oh, okay. And so it's really task management on steroids. And you know, what, what I like about Asana is it can be as flexible as you want it to be. So you can kind of make it what you want, uh-huh. but it's got integration. It's just like Slack, right? So Slack can be pretty flexible and you can integrate a lot of different things. And so, you know, we kind of have our processes and our systems and it's a good way to kind of not forget things and, have deadlines and track things and are people getting things done, right? And so, I mean, you know, we have a team behind us as well. And so how do you help keep it? our, our team is all remote.
1: Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, you know, most of how our team. How many do you have on your team? Five people. Five people. Got yeah. it. So you're, so they're all remote and you're helping them stay on task using Asana?
2: Yeah, and Slack. And so, I mean, you know, we have our Zoom calls. We have kind of, I will say, our processes. But, you know, it's how do you, because I, I believe in, People are most productive if you let them kind of work the way they want to work, right? Uh-huh. The right people. You still have to put rails in place because, yeah. you know, I mean, some people just don't know how to work remote. I mean, it's, 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 it's a little bit of a skill set, right? And so if you can kind of put enough rails and systems in place, right, but give people the benefit of being able to work where they want to, you know, because I don't care if you're in Hawaii or if you're in New Paris or if you're in, you know, London, right? I mean, you know, for, Yeah. Out, your output is your output, regardless of where you are. Right. So, you know, if you if you want to work nights and go party all day, I don't care, right? I mean, it's, you know, are you getting things done? Are you accomplishing things? Are you, are you working on things that we discuss and, you know, working towards the same
1: bigger goal? Oh, that's great. And And so uh, that's something I think maybe offline you and I will talk a little bit about. But I really like that you're so organized. You're so task-oriented because there's so many people that struggle with that, including me. Mm -hmm. getting much better at it. Thanks to just learning, just, just getting better at task organization. Um, definitely not a strong point though, but let's start, let's go back to the conversation of you getting in real estate. What year did you buy your first unit? 2013. Okay. So you got in after the downturn. I'm curious though, Did your industry, you had a software company, did that really get hit hard during 2000, 2008?
2: So I already had a, so I interned at Microsoft and Microsoft gave me a full-time offer before my last year of college. And then, you know, 2008 happened, right? Yeah. So that, you know, that crash happened and they still held the offer. They still, you know, I remember them sending out an email to all the people that had gotten offers as interns saying, don't worry, yeah, you know, Microsoft announced they're not going to hire new people, but you guys are still getting your position.
1: So I mean, not get impacted really, right? interesting so
2: I really like to hear that more than anything else so what was that is it was a big real estate crash more than anything else right
1: oh sure sure the stock market took
2: a dip but I mean it's not like tech companies shut their doors you know right after
1: yeah there's a lot of people losing jobs but um, probably in the financial sector real estate sector more than anything and I really like that you have that tech background because in Utah we have the silicon slopes huge amount of tech jobs, Adobe, Amazon, eBay, Oracle, Workfront, um, I don't know, Entrada. A lot of it's tech-based. Most of it's tech-based. And um, a lot of my investors have asked, you know, what is the ne- next downturn look like? Are all these jobs going to disappear? And my answer is, you know, well, Oracle was around before the last crash. Um, Facebook, Adobe has been around a long time. So I don't, I don't, Think, but I also don't have the experience, really, to know how heavy the tech tech industry was really hit. So, do you have any more insight on that? Like how diverse companies, you
2: know, did hiring freezes? Like Microsoft did their first time of layoffs, but most of these big companies, it's not that they're they're doing layoffs because they have to. It's that really because the market took a dip, it gives them cover to say they're going to, you know, to be able to to do a layoff and essentially. Get rid of, not that they're closing divisions, but get rid of unneeded employees, right? Mm -hmm. Over time, these companies end up hiring more people than they usually they need, right? And so it's about getting more efficient and, you know, the fact that the market has crashed gives them cover of saying, hey, we're going to also join the party and, you know, get rid of the the employees that we don't
1: want to retain, right? Got it. Whether it's performance or just, you know,
2: not the right fit or whatever it is, right?
1: But it wasn't like these tech companies were at risk of closing their shop, you know, closing no, doors.
2: I can't think of a single one. I mean, you know, obviously the big companies are pretty resilient, right? I and mean, they're all sitting on so much cash. I mean, that's the other thing, right? Yeah. Like, you know, Microsoft, Apple, all these are sitting on hundred billion dollars of cash. You
1: know, I mean, well, about what about me. the startups though? What about, you know, the guys, the for instance, Snapchat? I don't know that they're even profitable. Maybe they are now. I, I don't follow that. But there's a, it seems like there's a lot of SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. That are startups. They have huge. Yeah, but but uh, think about it this way:
2: the the lot, there, there's a lot of SaaS companies. They're B two C, right? they start B two B, and you know those businesses that that are their customers are still around too, right? So yeah. you know, like, yeah, do companies try to make budget cuts and cut back on expenses? <laughs> yeah, right. But it's not drastic to where companies are having to fully shut down, right? Like, yeah, maybe they're making a little bit less. You know, maybe they they don't hire new people, right? That's the big. And tech, it's really. There's more hiring freezes than there are layoffs, right? In recessions. Got it.
1: Right, so. No, I like that. Well, so tell me this. You're heavy into real estate. You're a syndicator doing huge things. You're competing for deals, I'm sure. And I know you're losing deals to other people, probably because you're conservative, which I like. But what mistakes are you seeing people make that probably is going to catch up to them if there is another recession?
2: Man, it's looking at what people are doing on reversion caps i mean to me it's really people don't do a good job of pausing and saying hey this property i'm planning to buy what whatever i'm modeling it out to sell right in six years what yeah. price point am i selling it at and like does that even make sense mm-hmm. right so you know i don't want to mention any names i'm sure i gotta say to be careful but mm-hmm. it's like you know cases like where okay so if i'm modeling a deal that i'm buying let's say i'm buying a deal at 80 a door yeah. and i'm putting 20 a door into it so now my cost base is a hundred Right. And now this is, let's say it's a 70 year old, yeah, built in the 70s. So it's about a 50 year old deal. Right. Yeah. So my cost base is 100 and I'm planning to sell it at 110 a door. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. But like, that's kind of above replacement costs. Is anyone going to actually pay that? You know what I mean? Yeah. Even if the NOI supports it, like really, you know what I mean? What does that feel right? So there's a lot of times that like we underwrite a deal and, you know, maybe it can handle a bigger, like a higher price point. But we have to back off. Cause I'm just like, man, this doesn't pass like just the sniff test. Yeah. People are so fixated on just, you know, to me, numbers don't lie. And I'm the first person to say that, but the numbers also don't lie whenever you're talking about replacement costs versus, you know, so there's kind of two schools of two conflicting sets of numbers is the problem. And so to me, you know, I don't care for the deals that are, you know, hundred a door and putting 20 into it. And then, you know, maybe I make it. I mean, those are, those are, crazy right to me and so i mean you know yeah yeah that's, that's my problem is though those kind of deals right and that's why we don't own anything in houston or dallas i mean we struggle to
1: get a deal that works because you houston can't get it a, a low enough price i mean you would own in houston or dallas but the market's too hot there it sounds like
2: yeah like i love the markets
1: right the markets are nice but
2: the price yeah. points are not attractive well,
1: enough. <laughs> and that's why you're looking at building just like me it's like well wait a second if i'm going to pay hundred dollars a door 100,000 a door or whatever it is.
2: I literally got a proposal it? today from this friend. Yesterday I went and looked at some some lands and got the the price points and everything so we could build, you know, 75 a door.
1: Dude, that's awesome. I, we need to talk more about that. And 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 we have the same thought process. I'm building in Utah and Boise, writing offers on on a 15 acre parcels, 5 acre parcels where if there's going to be rent appreciation. It's going to be great in a non-luxury A-class. You know, that's, that's pretty recession-proof. I'm not going to build luxury, and I don't think you are either. But maybe spend a tiny bit more and maybe have a little bit lower return at the beginning. But eventually, I mean, I think it's, that's one of the best buys you can do in this market is new construction at a lower price yeah. and not paying a premium for a C-class 50-year-old building.
2: Yeah, I know. I call it how do you build the A minus product and solve the affordable housing. It's funny, yesterday, as part of looking at the land, we were in a pocket of Houston that is more lower income. And so we're kind of going through that whole area. Um, yeah, because there's some people I know that have land in different areas and we're just driving through all the land. But the guy took me to this one neighborhood where it's essentially their houses that are for rent. So Matt, you know, one guy built the whole neighborhood, and he just rents them out. And, you know, I think of it would almost like a Unique multi-family, right? Wow. But it's really, you know, he's building them at, you know, fifty-five, sixty, sixty-five dollars a square foot built. Oh, so, Are they like cement floors and like? They look decent. No, they're. I mean, it, they look. Uh, the pro, they don't look bad. I mean, I should have taken pictures, but yeah. I mean, it's just an interesting business model. But again, he's solving that affordable housing problem, right, and making good money for it, right?
1: So interesting. Yeah, and, and affordable housing yeah, is a real thing. need.
2: I mean in houston you know houses are big right people don't need big houses in general right especially if you're solving the affordable house so then the problem that what was scared me about that was like man people could pay this kind of rent and get this whole house <laughs> I'm like yeah you know, there's apartments that are not nowhere near as nice that
1: are people are expecting to pay more of, right so yeah this is weird
2: <laughs> land is so cheap
1: right yeah that that is crazy well i, I still think it's smart though I, you know, why, again, why put your investors money into a 50, 60 year old building that needs rehab that may not sell for 110 a door in five or six years, you know, but Hey, a class, non-luxury a class, I think is the answer. I think you're on to something there. So we'll have to talk more, but we'll definitely see. So tell me about your, you've got some really cool deals going on. You've got some, you've purchased some really cool deals. As far as a syndicator goes, you know, what is a target return for your investors. You're not going to do 130% on each deal. So what are you yeah, targeting I mean, and what are you trying to do? Our deals that we're modeling today are typically doubling people's money in five or six years,
2: right? It just depends on the deal, you know, how much value add, what's the risk, right? For doing, if it's a more risky deal in the sense of there's down units, like we as sponsors are having to do a lot more work. I expect that deal to be, you know, more of a five year play, right? For having to, if that deal only works at a six year play at the price point, well, I mean, I'd rather go buy a deal where we don't have to do all this extra heavy. Lifting. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So I mean, you're know, looking at eight to 12% cash on cash is what we're kind of trying to average. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're looking at, you know, on a reversion cap, we're looking to be kind of three quarters to a point higher than kind of what the, the market is. And that's the important thing is what the market is. People really fixate on, you know, oh, I bought it. If I overpay for a deal at five cap and then I underwrite it on the exit as six cap. Does that make sense? Well, no, not if the market was already a six and I'm a, I just chose to overpay and so it's really, what is the market cap that you're looking
1: at? Well, explain reversion cap because most people don't know what that is. So you buy something market average, let's say the market average is a 6% cap rate.
2: So the first question is what is a cap rate, right? So I tell people cap rate is simple. It's if you bought a property all cash and you did nothing extra to it and you operated the exact same way as the previous owner, right, how much, what would you expect to get in a year? Right. That's all a cap rate is. Now, reversion cap rate. So cap rates are valuable-wise. So today with a house, right, if you're selling your house in the neighborhood, you pull comps and you see what are the other houses in the market selling for. Mm-hmm. Well, with commercial real estate, it's not that easy. There's not as many. It's not it's – not uh, It's income based right not. next to you. It's more about, yeah, like what is – how much are they – how much income are they producing? So the way you yeah. compare different assets is you look at cap rates. And so market might be a six cap. Austin's more of a five and a four-and-a-half cap, right? Different markets have different caps, and that's really – all the properties in that market or that submarket are going for that cap rate. Now, whenever we talk about the cap rate, the cap rate, the equation for the cap rate is that you know the cap rate is equal to the NOI over the value, right? So there's a relationship between the NOI and the value and the cap rate. Yep. And so now whenever we're talking about reversion cap rate, we're saying, okay, in five years or six years, whenever we sell this deal, right? If the market, you know, we assume the market's gonna get worse. Maybe right. it'll stay the same and that's fine, that's gravy. But don't count we on assume it. cap rates are going to go up. Exactly. We don't assume there's going to be more cap rate compression. Yeah. We assume that today, what I buy at a seven cap, I might have to sell at an eight cap in a year. And so, reversion cap is just how I'm calculating my value based on what I think the cap rates will be in five years.
1: And and so I think what you said earlier is, and, and I think it's across the board. People are expecting to either sell at the same cap rate they bought or a a lower cap rate, which is a terrible you know, mistake. See deals where they assume it's going to get better, but, but the right. the same estimation that they're using for that it goes into their rent bumps. They're probably estimating bigger rent yeah. bumps than they can actually get, or estimating lower expenses than they'll actually have, or lower um, capital expenditures than they'll actually have. And so, I think you have bu- people buying deals with completely wrong estimations of yeah. What they can sell it for, what they can rent it for, and how much money they actually need to put into it.
2: Yeah, like there's simple things that will really impact a deal, right? Like if all you do is, I can take like the worst deal I underwrite and make it look good. If all you do is do a slightly better reversion cap, right? These are subtle things, right? Uh, Instead of doing, you know, a point, maybe I do half a point. And then instead of doing two or two and a half percent rent multipliers, I do three and a half percent. And instead of doing two and a half percent expense multipliers, I do 2%. So now all that alone will take a deal that might underwrite at 20% mm-hmm. over five years and make it look like a hundred percent.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. And it's funny that you mentioned that. So that's one thing that maybe our listeners can look out for is if you're looking into syndicators, I mean, syndicators are a dime a dozen right now, good syndicators, there's a difference. And, and that's what Ferris you just mentioned is, you know, a syndicator right now can find a deal and make it look pretty sexy, you know, put lipstick on a pig on a pro forma and get people's money by the deal. And guess what? He's going to get a big acquisition fee and good for him. But the problem is, is the exit, you know, and the actual returns to that investor, especially if the market changes. So talking about the market changing, what do you, what do you guys put into place? I know you have, you know, capital reserves. I know you have um, different things in place, but Let's say the market does go down and we've got five six seven eight nine ten percent vacancy in units um what what have you guys done to ensure that you're going to be not as I mean, at risk gotta as stress, others you got to stress test the deals so, i mean that's really what it boils down
2: to right again numbers don't lie so if occupancy takes a dip and we can't get rent escalators where is the deal are we most important thing is there's return on your money and you're just trying to of your money. So you syndicate you want to make sure you always can return their money, right? Yeah. First and foremost, can we service the note? Are our, our bases covered? Then you're looking at, okay, the upside. And so, I mean, you know, we just, luckily most of our dealers are value add. And so we're not just betting on hypothetical market increasing, right? Like we, we are doing things fundamentally to change the dynamic of the deal to where we are at a higher level. And so we underwrite that and you know, with our rehab budget, et cetera. So that makes it a little bit easier in our, my world, at least for the kind of deals that we do versus mm-hmm. if I bought a class A stabilized, like I'm 100% susceptible to the market, right? Yeah. I can't go make a deal really much nicer, right? I mean, you know, or most people that are buying those aren't kind of necessarily planning that. And so that's bad. I mean, then you kind of, you know, you got to play with the, what's your occupancy at, what's your rents at. If the market kind of flattens for a year or two, what does that look like? Right. And it's just making sure that you're, you're protected. And then even, you know, debt, go into the deal differently. Like we had a deal in Atlanta that we ended up doing at a lower leverage point just because we could yeah. <laughs> we supported it. And I'm like, well, it's less risk. And it yeah. was interesting because you have different investors that'll come out of the woodworks for that kind of deal. Right. People that might put a hundred thousand in every deal, like the same people were coming out and they're putting two, 300,000 in that deal. Because again, that deal is so much more safer than another deal. Right. Our leverage yeah. point is so much lower. And so what's in, and then it's interesting because as a sponsor, it's almost like I can, you know, I can talk, I, you know, on that deal, like it's, I mean, I will always be able to pay something out, Right. Yeah. you know what I mean, like maybe, okay, maybe the market takes a dip. We don't hit our number, but there's, you know, your debt service is so low that you still have so much more, you know, meat left for you to pay something. So. It's interesting.
1: And, and so do you find it a lot easier to raise money on deals that you're putting more, you know, more down payment down? So we've only had, I mean, the, that one is the extreme example
2: where we were lower. It's different, right? I mean, there's always the fear of, okay, I have to raise more money, but then it's like becomes a selling point that we are lower leverage, right? We're right. not the deal. Our deals have never, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess when I look at it, we've never been able to do the 80 years I, uh, 80% IO five years, sorry, 80% leverage, five years IO, you know, the, those deals, like there's deals that in Dallas only work because of that. And that's fine. I mean, that's, right. that's a tool, right? Being able to get the right kind of loan. But unfortunately we, we haven't been able to do that. But the flip side is being at a lower leverage point and being able to get five years so because we're lower leverage. That's, that's, that's attractive. I mean, even me as an investor, I'd invest in that deal just because, yeah. you know, I mean, it's just a lower risk deal, right? Absolutely. Is it a good sponsor? Is the value add there? Okay then, you know, worst case, if, you know, a sponsor doesn't do their part. Well, I mean, we're still at such a low leverage, right? So,
1: Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. What else? I mean, what else are you guys doing or what advice? Maybe this is a get better question. What advice would you have to investors looking to invest? Say it's my mom. Say it's me who I've invested in lots of deals. Whoever it is, there's a million syndicators out there. I feel like they're the new, new wholesalers. <laughs> they're all <laughs> over the place. What advice would you have as far as what to look for in a deal? what as maybe paperwork, maybe how, what how the offering memorandum or the subscription maybe. paperwork goes.
2: Yeah, I would say read the, the operating agreement. There are subtleties in there that can be changed that people will easily overlook that, you know, I mean, different sponsors operate different ways, right? Like so far, and I think, I mean, we, we, we I think we will always be this way, you know, I don't want to make any promises, but you know, we, we let our investors get the upside in our deals, right? If we have that unicorn, our investors ride that train with us, right? Whereas, you know, like our structure is very simple, right? We don't do hurdles. We keep it pretty simple because, you know, our goal is to responsibly grow a bigger company, right? How do we get to hundred deals, you know, as a company? And so you don't do that by milking any one deal, right? <laughs> you build, you know, you build a track record, you build a reputation and a following. And so, you know, to me, it's read the company agreement, understand, is there a, is there a cash out, a refi? What does that look like? Are you, do investors have, you know, are, is the investor's money being structured more as debt than equity, right? Like, is there a point where basically investors get cashed out and now the syndicator owns the deal free and clear? And that's fine. Like some investors are happy with that and syndicate, I mean, it's more power to the syndicator, right? There's nothing wrong with that structure. It's just different, right? We just know what yeah. you're getting into, you know, and then what are the rules around, you know, being able to, you know, vote, right? Can you get rid of a bad syndicator? Understanding those things. And, um, but really, I mean, learn the basics of underwriting the deal, right? Even a syndicator with a track record, go do some of the homework. I mean, you know, $50,000 is not a small chunk of change, right? Yeah. Go and, you know, that's worth you spending the five hours to go just understand the basics. What does reversion cap mean? How do I calculate that? What does rent escalators mean? How do I calculate that? And then does it pass the gut check, man? Like I said earlier, It's not, is it the deal that you're paying 80 and your cost base is 110 and you need to sell for 140? I've literally had a broker come up to me, and I'm not going to mention any names or markets, but, you know, broker literally said, well, at least this deal feels right. You guys are buying it for X, you're putting X into it, and you're selling at X or Y. Things in this market sell at Y, (laughs) right? Then he said, you know, other people will buy at a much higher price point, but, but then, you know, like nothing in this market sells at that price point. Yep. Right. So maybe in five years it might, but it's, you know, there's a different kind of deal, you know, and again, people are very successful doing that too. Right. It's there, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't want to say that our strategy is the right way or the wrong way. It's there's different strategies that can get you success. Right. It's about you as an investor. What are you comfortable with? Does that strategy align with what your strategies are? Right. Cause I mean, I have another friend who he has really patient equity. His equity is okay with getting the 5% return for five years yep. to buy the best property in the best intersection. Yep. Right his strategy works well with his investor strategy. My investors would kill me if we if we got that kind of, you know what I mean? If I presented that to them. So, you know, it's about aligning report. interest. And so, yeah. And then, you know, I mean, and I tell people if you're new, it's try to invest with different syndicators, right? Learn what you like and don't like, right? If you see this as a long-term investment career, try different people, right? How does that syndicator communicate? Do they yep. communicate the good and bad? How did the process look like? Did they have an online digital thing or was it like get the mail it in the mail or fax it? You know, do they make themselves available? How do they do their distributions? Were you comfortable with the wiring process? There's a lot of things to kind of, you know, account for, right?
1: Yeah, no, that's huge. And, you know, one of the things that I've looked for is how do they talk to me? How do they talk to my investor? Do they have a track record? You no, know, do they have a cap on the return that, that they can give me? what kind of fees do they have as well though? You know, there's, you know, the really popular syndicators, you know, there's the Grant Cardone's, there's Jed Milburn here here in Salt Lake city where, I mean, they do a fantastic job, but you definitely pay for it. You're going to get a 5% pref, and they're going to get some massive fees and more power to them because they've yeah. built that track record. And, but you know, there's, there's also got, there has to be a really good reward and a mitigated amount of risk. I don't think that you need to take massive risks in this type in a real estate market or any type of real estate investment to get good returns. You don't need to get a 5% return to be safe, but you also don't need a 20% return to get wealthy. You can get your 8 to 10% cash and cash returns and that's really really good and and so what I've told people stop swinging for the fences. Maybe we'll find a unicorn just like you said. But be okay with not getting a unicorn and get rich for sure. Not fast, but get rich for sure, you know? And and I think that's one of the things I like about you and Ben is you're very conservative. You work really hard to not over-promise, but also not under, under-deliver, you know? Be right there in the middle, which I think is a perfect spot.
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, that's what we try to do. And then, I mean, we, <laughs> we have to sometimes grab the bull by the horns and wrestle some of these deals, man. Like, it's just you know, and you have to be willing to do that. Right. I think that's where some syndicators kind of falter. I mean, it is a business that you just bought and you have to, you know, things are not roses. I mean, our investors don't see the sausage making. Right. But there's a lot of stuff that you have to kind of put up with and deal with and, you know, keep the things rolling forward. Right. But like I said, especially it's like I mentioned earlier, I mean, all these deals once you're six months into the deal, just it's all a mess. Yep. construction going on everywhere there's occupancy there's cash flow problems you know and being willing to kind of go in and you have to work it i mean here's okay here's where we are here's what we're going to do for the next two weeks to help get this solved here's this okay we're going to do this we're going to go ask our lender to release more reserves if they could work with us to you know expedite like i mean think like we have a deal right now right you know we, we lose nothing for trying and that's what i tell people you lose nothing for trying the most people say is no literally went to our lender i'm like hey We've done 50 of these rehabs. We've gotten $130 rent pops, right? But it's just moves slow. We we have occupancy, we have anyway you know, we have an, we have we have vacancy, right? So we can go in and bang out a lot more. But right now it's a cash flow problem, right? Being because you know there our this deals. You have to fund it. So you have to do the work, submit the draw. Then you know the lender inspects it then they fund it. But it's like a four-week process. And yeah. so a little I went to the lender. I'm like, well, hey, so we should we showing you that we've done this? What about if we did, you know? a collective, like, let's get a, you know, if I had a GC bang out 25 of these at one time, we can get better pricing and the lender, you know, can you guys work with us to fund some of it as a deposit and expedite this and they're going back to their committee and they're going to go try to get that for us. So, I and mean, the guy says like, yeah, we should be able to do that. I
1: mean, it's, you nice.
2: know, being willing to kind of go and figure out the problems and solve them and move forward.
1: Yeah, and what I've noticed for the good syndicators, the really good investors, they're problem solvers. You know, and and that's what I like about you and Ben, um, Maureen Miles, um, Jed, a couple other people that I really like is they kind of think outside the box. They're not afraid to get their hands dirty, like you're talking about. They're not afraid to call a lender and hold them accountable, and they're just problem solvers. And that's the the best skill I've had with my investments is just being a problem solver and and figuring stuff out. Tell me a little bit. You know, we're kind of going over time, so I appreciate your time, but. What can our listeners do to reach out to you? What do you have going on? Do you have deals that you're advertising? Um, are you going to have deals coming on later this year? I mean, how should we have them reach out to you?
2: Yeah, I mean, feel free to, you know, check out the website, www.disruptequity.com or email me personally, Ferris, F E R A S at disruptequity.com. You know, I mean, we we will <laughs> a good syndicator always has some sort of deal of flux, right? At least trying. I mean, you're always making yeah. offers, so. though. You know, I mean, we're hoping to do two more by the end of the year, but I mean, those are probably five or six B's, but, you know, we're happy to talk with people and learn and, you know, maybe at some point, you know, connect with people. Right. And then on top of that, we, you know, we do host a conference. we try to do four a year. We ended up doing three this year, but, you know, our next one's in Boston, October 5th. So we'll be out there, you know, multifamily investor network, com, And then we'll be back here in Houston. So Sam, we've got to get you down for that one. So you should pencil that in. I think yep. the date is February 6th, that is it that, whatever that Saturday is. Cool. You definitely come out. We did that February 8th. We did the first one last year. You know, first conference we ever did was last year. Turned out really well. I mean, 250 people. We're, we're aiming for 300 for this time in Houston. And, um, you know, just want to kind of continue to build that out. And it's really meant to be a no sales pitch event. I mean, we lose money for these. Unfortunately, we're trying to just break even. <laughs> but, you know, we're trying to foster a community an environment where people can come out and learn and get exposure to
1: you know it's what the goal is to teach people at that event how to invest in multi. not even teach you're not really to trying, trying to sell to people you. anything right yeah so i say it is that
2: people like me and you are willing to fly out across the country spend 3 days and pay a couple hundred dollars to take it for an event right cuz we're yeah. you know we're serious in the space and so we're committed to it. we already know it right and you know we're kind of you know for lack of a better word i mean this is kind of like a, a job now what we're really instead is how do i expose the the dentist, the doctor, the lawyer, the engineers, right? That are, have an interest in real estate and multifamily investing, but don't really know what it's about. And how do you at least give them, you know, one day crash course, right? Into getting exposure to the world of multifamily. And it's not to teach them everything, but it's to to let them know what they need to go learn next. Right?
1: Yeah. And here's what I would say is I'd say, go to, go to this event. So it's MFinvestorNetwork.com. Yeah. Go to the event and, And the thing that I've really enjoyed is just meeting the actual syndicator, looking in their eyes and asking them the hard questions, you know, and or and just seeing how you interact with people. You know, there's one syndicator, I won't say his name, I would never work with him because he humiliated someone in our group in San Diego. And I don't know if you remember that, but I was appalled at how he treated people. He was arrogant and very smart individual. I'd never work with them, never send them a client and He's called me, said, "Hey, can can you raise money for this project?" And I just had to kindly say no. So, that's one really valuable thing I think um, they can people can do is come to your event, meet a couple different syndicators, meet you and Ben, and really understand that you're good, down to earth people that are. Just yeah, and we
2: try to bring experts from the community. Yeah. right. We're trying, to, we're trying to have you know we're trying to have an expert about Opportunity Zone. Rod Khalif will be there. Neil Bowell will be there. Gene Trowbridge will be there. Really bringing you know it's just to get people kind of a taste of the world that's, that's absolutely a, that's another way you know anyone in boston will meet you or there or houston as well so hey i'll kind of Lake city that. sometime here actually that's probably actually a good we might do that that's probably a good market for next year we'll see
1: well maybe we'll tee it up and i can talk at yeah. your event about salt lake city and the uh, silicon slopes for five minutes let's make it happen sweet dude